Thanksgiving marks only one day on our calendars, but a spirit of thanksgiving should mark our lives every day because we are amply supplied from His boundless bounty. To get us thinking in this vein, we sang the first hymn in our hymn book. Let me repeat those lyrics. All people that on the earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Him serve with fear, His praise forth tell, come ye before Him and rejoice. The Lord ye know is God indeed, without our aid He did us make. We are His folk, He doth us feed, and for His sheep He doth us take. O enter then His gates with praise, approach with joy His courts unto. Praise Lord and bless His name always, for it is seemly so to do. For why? The Lord our God is good. His mercy is for is ever sure. His truth at all times firmly stood and shall from age to age endure. Indeed, we're ex- experiencing even in this life the first taste of the fullness of the goodness of God. So these four stanzas are a paraphrase of the 100th Psalm. I invite you to open your Bibles and turn back there. In order to prime the pump of our hearts to think about praising God for all the blessings that we have enjoyed over this last year, to give public thanksgiving before God in the ears of our brethren, we're going to consider a brief exposition of Psalm 100 this morning. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who made us, not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. And his faithfulness to all generations. Now this morning we're going to be considering this psalm. Under four headings we're going to look at the glorious object of our thanksgiving. Secondly, the extensive scope of this thanksgiving. Thirdly, the corporate expression of our thanksgiving. And finally, the divine goodness urging our thanksgiving. And we're going to be spending most of our time this morning considering the glorious object of our thanksgiving. Because our thanksgiving is to Him. So let us consider then, first of all, the glorious object of our thanksgiving, and it is the Lord God. Now even unconverted men know that gratitude is a a happy attitude. It is particularly heart-cheering when we look 
at the blessings that God gives and that we look beyond the blessings that God gives to the good giver himself. He is our focus this morning. Because these gifts come from God, they're all the more precious. You think about some little knick-knack that you might have. You, you have it on your mantle. Oh, it doesn't amount to much in the way of value. But it's precious to you because it was given to you by a beloved person. And therefore, all the gifts that we receive from the good hand of God, we should regard them as especially precious because they come to us from His generous hand. So let us look at the glorious object of our thanksgiving. I'd like us to notice five things about Him. First of all, He is God. He is the God who is in the beginning God. Before the beginning, God. Since the beginning, God. Forever, God. Brethren, this is the central truth that all men must know. Know that the Lord himself is God, says the psalmist. And I suggest to you that this is the foundational reality. In fact, nothing in the world makes sense without this sentence. Therefore, no gratitude is possible, not even from heathen hearts, without this reality. All that we possess, even that we are alive, is because God is. In Him we live and move and have our being. All that we possess comes from Him. That we are is a result that He exists. And brethren, I, I ask you, what is loud, proud atheism? And we hear so much of it today. What is loud, proud atheism but a hopelessly impossible attempt to erase from our minds we who are made in the image of God, the knowledge that God is. In fact, without God, there could be no such thing as a lie. There could be no truth, no sin, no righteousness, no ingratitude, no gratitude. Even the devil, who was a liar from the beginning, did not deny God's existence. His goal is instead to tempt us to deny what we know instinctively about God, to blind us to His existence, to blaspheme His truth, to overthrow His authority, and especially to deny His goodness. And that was how He tempted Eve in the garden. Satan said, oh, God is a meanie. He's not a good God if He won't let you eat from that tree. Indeed, we become atheistic in our thinking when we think that God isn't good because He denies us something that we might want, that He knows better than to give it to us because He loves us and He's good. All men, both those who read the Bible and those who have never heard there exists such a thing as the Bible, know that God exists. 
Even those who don't know him as Savior know him as Maker. In fact, every person under heaven beholds his wisdom and power and goodness imprinted indelibly upon their soul. They see it in what God has made. It's before their eyes. It testifies to his goodness. And he's given them a conscience where he set up his government in their soul, where they know that there is a God, and this God is to be thanked and he is to be honored. So plain is the reality of God's existence that we suppress our knowledge of him and in unrighteousness, and we make other gods in a de desperate attempt to distract ourselves from the reality that there is a God and a God with whom we have to do. Paul writes to this in Romans. Romans 1, verses 20 and 21. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Indeed, what are all false doctrines but the spawn of the devil and gladly received by his spiritual children until God opens our eyes to see the kingdom of God? What is evolution? What is every false theory which is the spawn of hell but an attempt to say in our minds, to convince ourselves that there is no God, that he doesn't deserve to be thanked, and he doesn't deserve to be honored, and he doesn't deserve to be acknowledged. And the Apostle Paul here in Romans chapter 1 teaches us that ingratitude to God is one of our characteristic and cardinal sins. We not only don't honor Him, we don't give Him thanks. In fact, this ingratitude to God spawns all kinds of empty speculations about God and the world that He has made including ourselves. Only the saving grace of God can make us truly grateful to the good and gracious God that is. So He is God. Secondly, He is the one and only God. You see, our fallen Adam has not eradicated our knowledge of God. But sin deflects our devotion from the true God to the worship of false gods. Calvin has observed that our hearts are idle factories. In fact, we are spiritual adulterers by nature. Depravity has made us dissatisfied with the true God so that we 
make counterfeits to satisfy our lust for other deities. We are incurably religious. We'll either have the true God or we'll have false gods. But there's really no man that has no God. If he says he has no God, he is his own God. God commands us to have no other gods before him. But we freely give our hearts to anything but him. But one fact remains, Jehovah is the only God. Our devotion must be to him alone. And so God admonished the idolaters in Israel for their worship of false gods through the the mouth of Isaiah. Isaiah 44 and verse 8. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. These gods shouldn't make you nervous. They don't exist. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? And the God that knows everything says, I know of none. There is but one God, the Lord, and we are to worship Him and Him only. Sadly, in our day, the worship of God, that is the God of the Bible, wanes while false religion and irreligion have become the norm. One pollster has recently observed that the faith alignments and activities, and he's talking about the millennial generation, of the millennial generation bear only limited resemblance to those of prior generations. There are fewer self-professed Christians as well as a large and growing mass of people who do not believe in a supernatural God, especially not the God of Israel or the Bible as a source of unquestioned truth. Three out of four millennials believe that all religious faiths are of equal value. Now, I'm not picking on a particular group because of their age, but they're the largest generation in America. And this is what they believe or don't believe. Well, brethren, we modern Americans think idolatry as some backward religious practice by heathens in dark jungles. But idolatry is alive and well amongst our own countrymen. So he is God, he is the one and only God. Thirdly, he is the almighty creator God, the almighty eternal Lord who always was and is and is to come spoke and called all things into existence. There's nothing that is made that has not been made by the Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider a number of things about this God, this Creator God, this One who's almighty. First of all, the Lord made all things by Himself and for Himself. No one hired God to make the universe, no. In eternity past, when only He was, He chose to make the world. He made it for His own pleasure. Creation is the work of the triune God. 
The Father planned it. The Son created it. And it was accomplished through the work of the Spirit. Psalm, or excuse me, Proverbs 16 and verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose. Here may be, well, a reference, certainly to the triune God, but maybe the God the Father in particular. But we know that God the Son is involved in creation, Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16. And He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Him and for Him. The Spirit of God is involved. We read about Him brooding over the waters. We read in Psalm 104, verse 30, these words, Thou dost send forth Thy Spirit, they are created, and Thou dost renew the face of the ground. Secondly, the Lord made all things out of nothing without any pre-existing matter because no matter existed when only God was. The universe, it is empty, what we consider to be emptiness, it didn't exist. It was only God. Matter is not eternal. Only God is eternal. Thirdly, the Lord made all things without anyone's help or counsel. He didn't ask anyone to come alongside to tell him how to do it. Or he wasn't strong enough to do it by himself. No, he did it all. And therefore, all glory belongs to him alone. Romans 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Fourthly, the Lord upholds all things that he has created. Again, without any assistance from anyone outside of himself. Speaking of our Creator Christ, we read in Colossians 1.17, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. All things subsist because of the word of His power. He who spoke all things into existence could speak all things out of existence. He holds all things together. It's the almighty glue of His Word that keeps atoms from flying apart and everything dissolving into nothing. But the high priests of our day, pagan members of the scientific community, teach that all things somehow came from nothing and that all life comes from non-living things without God. Spurgeon in his day exposed the folly of Darwin's evolutionary theory. Its lies even back then were gaining traction among unbelieving scientists and were beginning to creep into the church. The good old preacher observed a century and a half ago of late, philosophy has labored hard to prove that all things 
have been developed from atoms or have, in other words, made themselves. If this theory shall ever find believers, there will certainly remain no reason for accusing the superstitious of gullibility. For the amount of credence necessary to accept this dogma of skepticism is a thousandfold greater than that which is required even by an absurd belief in winking Madonnas and smiling Bambinos. He's talking about Roman Catholic mysticism and superstition. For our part, we find it far more easy to believe that the Lord made us than that we were developed by a long chain of natural selections from floating atoms which fashioned themselves. Well, it doesn't sound very scientific. It sounds absurd, but at the essence, in its essence, that's exactly what they believe happened. Now, this psalm, not to mention the rest of the Bible, puts the lie to the doctrine of evolution. It's, it's not we who made ourselves. It's God who made us. He made everything. And yet professing Christians that bow the knee at Darwin's shrine interpret our text as nothing more than poetic sentimentalism. David, he just didn't know. He wasn't a scientist. He doesn't understand that, that there was evolution. He had this absurd notion that this kind of God fixation that he made everything. I hope that's your fixation this morning. But brethren, let's think about this for a minute. If this psalm isn't true, if God isn't the creator, what kind of God would he be if he falsified the origin of the world? If really it happened and it didn't happen as he he says it happened, by his creative fiat, would a lying deity be worthy of our gratitude? You see where you, where you end up with, the, with theistic evolution? Brethren, we cannot substitute the God of theistic evolution for the God of six-day creation and have a God that is worthy of our devotion. The psalmist didn't think so. He penned a whole psalm, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, who hast displayed thy splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him? And the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God and dost crown him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, 
and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. You don't have a majestic God, you have a deceiving deity, if this is not true. Brethren, it was the Lord who made us. It was not other gods of which there are none. It was not some cosmic accident or the sum total of time plus chance. Nor was it we who made ourselves, nor can we sustain ourselves. We owe our existence and our maintenance to God and to God alone. Remember God's warning to Israel not to take their blessings in Canaan for granted or to think that they were somehow the author of their blessings. Not only did we not create ourselves, we can't sustain ourselves. Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 and 18. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, when you get there and you have these cities... And all of these things are waiting for you. You dispossess them. And everything that was there becomes yours. Otherwise you may say in your heart, My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. Let me just say right here, there's no such thing as a self-made man. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you power to make wealth that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is to this day. We cannot reject Jehovah as almighty creator and be truly grateful, since all thanksgiving leads us ultimately to God, who is the source of all of our blessings. All objects of our thanksgiving Think about wicked men. I thank my lucky stars. Or karma. Or our wit and our wisdom. All these things are idols that men create to replace the one true, gracious, and good living God. We're not truly thankful when we steal the crown of praise and place it on any other head than God's. No, gratitude is is the child of faith, a faith which bows before God as the Father of all blessing. So He is God, He's the one and only God, He's the Almighty Creator God, and He is the faithful, preserving God. Again, we did not create ourselves, we cannot keep ourselves, we are kept by God. And how precious is the truth that God keeps us at all times and in all circumstances, in weakness and in strength. It's by His hand that we're upheld. Psalm 121, verses 4 through 7. Behold, He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God doesn't take a day off. He doesn't take naps. He who created us continually sustains us. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. Now, when it says He will protect you from all evil, that doesn't mean circumstantial evil that He'll keep us from. We have sickness. We have tragedies in our lives. We have financial reversals. 
but he will keep our souls. He will keep your soul. He will keep our souls from all evil. He will not allow the devil to have his evil way with us. If you're a Christian, God sustains you, sustains you not only physically, but also spiritually. You're kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. You have the promise of your faithful God. He that began a good work in you will perfect that work until the day of Christ Jesus. He will never leave you or forsake you. And that's said in the context of people worrying about where their next meal is going to come from. The God that has brought you from sin to grace will bring you all the way from grace to glory. That's the promise. For those that are God's people, there are no U-turns on the road of salvation. You are assured of this by God's will and by Jesus' promise. Jesus said in John 6 and verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, not a single one of them. Every one that the Father has given me, I will bring safely to glory. How do we know that? But we'll raise it up on the last day. We're brought from sin to grace, and we're brought from grace to glory. Christian, your safe arrival in glory is also assured by your Savior's prayer. John 17 and verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. Now, where was Jesus going to go right after he prayed? Well, he was going to go and he was going to suffer and he was going to die. Three days later, he was going to be raised from the dead. And 40 days later than that, he was going to be ascended to glory. In order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. And the writer of the Hebrews says that he ever lives to make intercession for us. The writer, Romans, Paul, says he's seated at the right hand he makes in, of God and he makes intercession for us. If he interceded for us on the cross and purchased our salvation... And he intercedes for us in glory. Will he not preserve us all the way to the end? Perish the th any other thought, brothers and sisters. Finally, who is this one? He is Jehovah, our covenant God. Jehovah, our Lord, is God's personal name. It's the name he calls himself. It's derived from the verb, I am. I am is our God. The only God, the almighty creator and preserver of his people is the Lord. He is Jehovah, the great I am. He's the covenant making, the covenant imposing, the covenant keeping sovereign Lord of the universe and the only Savior of his people. Isaiah challenged 
the idol worshipers of his day to bring their best arguments forward to defend the cause of idolatry against the truth that Israel's Lord is the only God and Savior of men. He says, marshal all of your arguments. Bring them before me. I want to listen to them. Isaiah 45, 21. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Like so many attorneys. They're going to bring forth their best arguments. Let them put their heads together. See what they come up with. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. It's not Baal, it's not the Asheroth, it's not Chemosh. It's not any of the gods of the, the peoples. There's one God who's the maker and keeper of all peoples. It's Jehovah. Furthermore, Jesus is incarnate Jehovah, the eternal Son of God made flesh. He came from glory to redeem a world of sinners at the cost of his own suffering and bloody death. This he accomplished upon the cross when he absorbed in his body and soul the infinite wrath of God to save a host of damned and doomed sinners that no man can count from all the families of mankind. The Lord God is sovereign and he's a sovereign savior. The word loving kindness In Psalm 100 and verse 5 is a word pregnant with this glorious truth. God's loving kindness. If we chase this term around the scriptures, we'll find that it is his faithful, loyal love for those whom he has taken into covenant union with himself through Jesus Christ, his son. Indeed, Jesus is the living embodiment of the covenant of grace that God appointed to save his elect people throughout the world. Isaiah saw this, Isaiah 42 and verse 6, I will appoint you, speaking of the, of the servant of Jehovah, speaking of Jesus, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people. Just to Israel? No. As a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. You see, that includes you and me. Jesus, therefore, is God's loving kindness personified. His death secures the salvation of all who are in that covenant as the purchase of his blood. Indeed, his blood is the blood of the new covenant. His blood is a testimony of his love for God so loved. So let me ask you this morning, 
Is this faithful, loving covenant God your God? He must be so if he would be saved. If he be brought from sin to grace and have the assurance of being transported throughout your life from grace to glory. What is the testimony of our gracious Lord? He said to those in his day that should have known better and didn't believe upon him. He says, unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. In fact, he has the right to dogmatically affirm that I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. And with this testimony, the apostles agree. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name that's been given uh, um, under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Paul commanded the jailer, gospel based upon that fact, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Grateful should be every sinner who has believed this, everyone who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So that, I told you, would take up most of our message. That's the glorious object of our thanksgiving, the Lord. He is God. He is the one and only God. He's the almighty creator God. He's the faithful preserving God. He is Jehovah, our covenant God. And far more briefly, notice secondly, the extensive scope of this thanksgiving. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Brethren, the psalmist here is issuing a universal call. He's calling all mankind to thank the Lord from whom all blessings flow. And especially thankful should be everyone who has experienced God's greatest gift of salvation that He's provided in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. For indeed, it's through Him that we receive all blessings as the people of God. But let's take a step back. God advertises His goodness to all men in what theologians call common grace. The the gracious disposition of God is seen in the way that He takes care of all of His creation. Jesus said He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And of these, Paul says, Acts 14 and verse 17, He did not leave Himself, that is God, the Creator and Provider. He did not leave Himself without witness. You've seen it with your own eyes in that He did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Every thing that you enjoy, from a mouthful of food to a happy heart, thankful ears, listening to the chirping of your children, and delighting in the smile of your wife, all of these things, and everything has been given to you by God. And what, to what end? just so you'd be satisfied with these things and things, these things alone? No, they advertise His mercy that He delights to give to save people from their sins. 
But sin blinds us to God's goodness. It deranges our minds and darkens our hearts, making us thankless creatures that bite the generous hand that feeds us. And as we noted before, we know God, but we do not honor Him as God or give thanks. But instead, we became futile in our speculations and our foolish heart was darkened because we did not give Him thanks and honor Him as God. That's the effect of ingratitude. Yet God continues to shower us with blessings that we might seek Him with the chief blessing of all, and that is pardon from our sin and new life in Jesus Christ. Romans 2 and verse 4, Paul argued that way. Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But as long as we despise the kindness of Him who supplies all of our material blessings, we will never seek Him to supply us with that one thing absolutely needful, the forgiveness of our sins and new life in Christ. Notice also that God summoned to all the earth to shout to Him in joyful praise indicates not only our duty, it also suggests by His grace, that men throughout the world will heed that call. This summons forecasts a redeemed humanity that will offer unending praise and thanks to God and to the Lamb. If you're a Christian, your voice will be raised with those that who are even now singing what we read in Revelation 7, I think it's verse 9. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Bless God that His saving grace rescues the thankless and makes them thankful. He turns grumbling sinners into grateful saints. There comes a day when all the chosen of God will cheerfully comply with this happy command to give God unceasing thanks. Oh, beloved, what a happy day that will be. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Thirdly, the corporate expression of our thanksgiving. Now, we've seen whom we are to thank. It is the Lord God. We've seen who are responsible to thank God, all the earth. Now let us consider how we are to thank the Lord. And though we should express our gratitude to God at all times because He blesses us every moment of the day, notice that the psalmist exhorts us to utter thankful praise publicly, specifically when we come together as the congregation of God's people. Verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Now, what does he teach us about the way we should thank the Lord when we meet to worship he who is God, the only God, the creator, sustainer, provider, protector, and our covenant Lord? First, two things, by joyful singing and grateful praise by joyful singing and grateful praise. Brethren, the singing of our praise should be cheerful. It should be upbeat. It should be even exuberant. 
and not quiet, but with volume sufficient to express appropriate gratitude to God. We should come here and sing holy hallelujahs. If we can go to a ball game and cheer a team at the top of our lungs, can't we come and give some of that lung power to God? Them for a temporal winning to us, eternal blessing? What does he teach about the way we should thank him? First of all, by joyful singing and grateful praise. Spurgeon says the original word signifies a glad shout, such as loyal subjects give when their king appears before them. He comes out on the court before the people, tumultuous praise goes up at the sight of their king. Our happy God should be worshipped by a happy people. A cheerful spirit is in keeping with his nature, his acts, and the gratitude which we should cherish for his mercies. So let me ask you, does your contemplation of the Lord and his blessings excite gratitude to God? When you enter the services of the church, maybe after a hard week and yet a week in which you've experienced the Lord's sustaining love each morning and favor each day, does it cause your heart to overflow with gratitude that spills out on your lips? Do you come counting your blessings? Are those blessings so many motives to raise your voice in grateful praise? Well, if you're like me, oftentimes it is not. The psalmist suggests that silence is not only inappropriate, it's criminal. A mumbled thanksgiving is worse than silence. And I suggest to you, it's, it's worse than leaving a good waitress a penny tip. High privilege calls for high-sounding praise. How disproportionate often is our praise to his gifts. Shall we not praise God loudly who supplies us fully? Let us never be afraid of expressing hearty thanks to him from whom all blessings flow. Let us heed God's call to joyful, grateful, and I suggest loud public praise. When, our, when we're singing with our hymn books and, and our heads are down like this and we're kind of mumbling into the pages, we're not giving God the kind of praise that he commands of us in the 100th Psalm. Furthermore, by glad service, we are God's new covenant priesthood. We are come to serve him as his priests. We're commanded to serve the Lord with gladness. And brethren, what a blessed command this is. Don't you like to be glad? Isn't your contemplation of, of the God of the Bible, isn't that sufficient to make you glad because he's made you his own? He's not only made you, he's also, if you're a Christian, redeemed you. You have not only the first birth, but the second birth. You not only have temporal provision, you have divine assurance of eternal glory. 
When we come here to worship our great God, is our worship characterized more by gladness or glumness? When God listens to our singing, when He hears our praying, when He watches our response to the preaching of His Word, when we come to the table, what does our demeanor say to Him? Brethren, if earthly kings are offended by discontented and distracted servants, how should our heavenly king, whose yoke is easy and burden is light, light, who only gives good gifts to us, when we come to him and our demeanor suggests that, well, maybe he's really not that good after all. What does a sullen spirit say to him who is our almighty creator, our generous provider, and our covenant savior? The fruit of gratitude is gladness. And where there is not gladness, there is not acceptable worship. I suggest that we may need an attitude adjustment when we enter God's worship. The exhortations in verse 4 assume that we are to rule our emotions and not allow them to rule us. We're to come glad. And if we're not glad, we need to take ourselves aside and have a, sit ourselves down and have a good talk. This is the kind of God we're coming to worship. Is he pleased with a dour countenance? Is he pleased by distracted thoughts? Is he pleased by anything less than the blessed his grace would give us to utter our praise with loud thanksgiving? Sometimes we're more effusive in our praise of men than we are in our praise of God. Oh yes, we should be effusive in our praise of men, but it should never outstrip our praise of God. Brethren, God has the right to demand how He is to be worshipped. And we have the responsibility of bringing our attitude into a right frame for praising and thanking the Lord when we come into His courts. Well, how can we ponder the greatness and goodness of God and not feel a sense of gratitude welling up in our hearts? Brethren, our coldness is our shame. Therefore, notice finally, fourthly, the divine goodness urging our thanksgiving. We have the reason and the impetus why we're to come into His courts with thanksgiving and praise. Let me read verses 4 and 5 together. See the connection. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. It'll never come to an end. It'll never wear out. The little word for that introduces verse 5 points to the one who is good and whose goodness is displayed in His expansive and unfailing covenant love. A.W. Pink says, The goodness of God respects the perfection of His nature. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. 1 John 1.5 There is such an absolute perfection in God's nature and being that nothing is wanting to it or defective in it Nothing can be added to make it better. Brethren, the Lord 
is not just good. He is goodness itself. That's not just his activity. That's his character. He does good because he is good. He is faithful because his love knows no end. It is only right that we sing, Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. His past faithfulness advertises his future faithfulness because that's the kind of God that he is. He's good. God is love. His loyal covenant love knows no change. Our loving Lord is not fickle, but he's unfailingly faithful. And so we sing, every human tie may perish. Friend to friend, unfaithful prove. Mothers cease their own to cherish. Heaven and earth at last remove, but no changes can attend Jehovah's love. Because the Lord is forever loving and unfailingly good, let us enter his courts with thanks, his gaze with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. Why? For the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Our Father, we we have to confess that the worship that we often give is not not in keeping with your goodness. Indeed, if people had to read your goodness according to the praise that we give, they may have to wonder what kind of God this is that we call our God. Therefore, our Father, even though we are only finite and you are infinite and we can only give you at the very best a grain of sand compared to the ocean's fullness of the kind of praise and worship and thanksgiving that you deserve. Oh Lord, make us give what little we give to give our best. Fill our hearts with gratitude. Fix our eyes upon you who are the only God. That you are our God. And you revealed yourself to us through Jesus Christ. Make us to be those who are grateful seven days of the week and joyously loud in our thanksgiving when we come together in your name. For Lord, what is the Lord's day but a dress rehearsal for glory? May our praise even now more and more, though faint at present, resemble the, the, the worship of the spirits of just men made perfect above. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.